I've decided we might just call today the no good, very bad Sunday. <laughs> it seems like everything is falling apart, and that's not church specific. This morning, I couldn't find my glasses. I got to the church because the ballast in my office went out Thursday, and so I had been working from home, and I hadn't had an opportunity to print bulletins. And Brother Stewart graciously came in and put a new light in my office this week, and I was excited to see it. And it's amazing. It's better than the one that was in there before because the fluorescent light's not flickering, but our Internet service isn't working, and resetting it hasn't worked. And I also can't contact the Internet company. So I went to Miss Sherry's office to get the account number so that I could call them so that I know what I would need. And I found out that our internet service actually transferred from one company to another company. And that company, when you go to their website, it redirects you to the old company that tells you that your account's no longer with them. <laughs> and then I remembered the text for this morning and I said, I'm not going to do this work on the Sabbath. So there's no church bulletin. My children went to the nursery this morning. Miss Carolyn is filling in for Miss Sherry, who's out because Brother James is in the hospital with his hip pain. And my children melted down in a way that they have never melted down before in their entire lives. In public. In public, Michelle says. And, um, and then we're sitting down and we're singing, and my thought the entire time is what a perfect list of songs for the no good, very bad Sunday that I'm having. I don't know if you know this, Count Your Many Blessings is a special song to Michelle and I. It's special because it's a song that gave us great hope in one of the, I would say, one of the hardest periods of our life. Not only that, but every time we sing it, I think about Miss Doreen Redden, the pastor's wife of our former pastor, Brother George Redden in Bella Vista. We call her many affectionately, and so we count our many blessings when we sing that song because many is still a blessing to us. When Charlotte was being born, she was in the hospital, and, and that was a, just a season of turmoil and just tumultuous upheaval. Michelle went to the hospital. We cut her baby moon short because her blood pressure was high. She was induced, and then she was in labor for 83 hours, something like just a ridiculous amount of time. Her water broke, 24 hours passed. That wasn't going to work, so we had an emergency C-section in the middle of the procedure. Michelle said, by the way, I can feel that. And so she had to have an immediate dosage of anesthesia given to her again. Our baby was delivered and she was held up. Charlotte looked like a blue alien, nothing as adorable as she is now. And she wasn't breathing, and so she was whisked away by doctors before we knew what was happening. I didn't know what was happening. All I was focused on doing was doing what Michelle said that I needed to do, so I was reading her a psalm. And, the, and Charlotte's gone, and then we're separated, and for the first time in my life, I had to make a decision because no longer was the only person who was important in my life my wife that I needed to follow out of anesthesia, but also this newborn baby who's struggling to breathe. We made it through that. We got back in our room and weeks passed and we were in the hospital room and Michelle finally got her strength up and she said, I want to go get something out of the vending machine. So she took my debit card out of my wallet, went to the vending machine. She came back empty-handed. She sat down on the bed. I didn't think anything of it, and she just started to cry. 
That defective vending machine was the straw that broke the camel's back. She didn't know what to do. And uh, we sat down and realized how disappointed we were with the past week. How frustrated we were with everything that had just happened. And we got a notepad. We wrote down the number one. And we said we were so thankful for the gynecologist that had been caring for us. Wrote number two, we said we were so thankful for our pastor who had been sitting at the hospital with us three days straight. We wrote down the number four. We said we were so thankful that on top of all of this, we could be annoyed by the onslaught of people that wanted to visit us during the worst time of our life. We took those words literally, and we counted our many blessings. This morning, I can count my many blessings. I'm here with you all, and we have an opportunity to preach God's Word. We don't need church bulletins. We need God's Word before us, and we need to seek to understand it. I'm reminded of the turmoil that must have been happening in Israel when they returned to Jerusalem. I think it's easy to skip past, if you've not been with us or you're visiting with us for the first time, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah for some time now, and what we've found is not only has God led the people of Israel in rebuilding the wall after the Babylonian captivity, but now He seeks to rebuild and reconstruct what is their spiritual worship. What does revival look like? And certainly in our day and time, revival is a word that has a lot of significance as it rings in our minds. Some of you, older than I am, probably remember when churches used to have these revival meetings. These times when they would bring in guest preachers, because what happens after time when you hear the same person speaking is you get used to their voice, you get used to the way that they formulate ideas, the way that they present information, and it seems like we just go to sleep. We need someone to come in and wake us up and remind us that what we're doing isn't just a corporate act of hearing someone stand up and proclaim the Word of God, but that it's a spiritual act of worship that we participate in together. That the things that we do, the mundane, the routine, these are actually disciplines that exist for the purpose of reshaping our brain. Physiologically, this is literal. Our brain is reshaped by the disciplines of worship that we practice. That such acts of worship actually construct in our thinking and the way that we go through life what it means to honor and glorify God. In this book of Nehemiah, so far what we found is that the people have most recently decided to recommit themselves to the promises that make them God's people, that they will be distinct. And last week we looked at this ideal community that they would form through these promises. This week we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 10, looking specifically not just at the parties, that is the people of Israel covenanting together amongst themselves, but now what are the terms of this commitment that they've made together? Before we read from our text, I pray that you already have your Bible open, ready to read along with me, but I would like to go to God and ask Him that He would give us the understanding as we read. Our Father in heaven, I thank You for this morning. 
Lord, I thank you for the way that you glorify yourself in the testimony of creation. And God, I ask that you would guide us this morning, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might be able to behold the amazing truth found in your law. Give us understanding. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. With your Bibles open in front of you to Nehemiah chapter 10, I will begin reading in verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths and the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offering to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses." at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levite shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. Isn't that an exciting passage of Scripture to read? Certainly, just looking at it this morning, if you haven't had your mind focused on what's taking place in the revival and reconstruction of Israel during Nehemiah's day, it would be easy to focus on, okay, they were developing some sort of social program that would reconstitute Israel and reestablish them so that they would be at least somewhat profitable for the time to come. We find something deeper, though, than just the social program of this reconstruction. Remember, the terms of this covenant do not exist simply as a covenant between Israel and God. This isn't a part of covenant theology. This is an example of a corporate people collectively, deciding that they would no longer identify with their individuality, but that they would identify with the people of God, that this would be what represents them, that this would be who brings them to God. And so they make a recommitment amongst themselves, a recommitment to honor God in the way that they live their lives. This is exceptionally practical in the life of the church. This is exceptionally applicable in the way that the church lives their lives because I think the motivation for falling away from this in the past is clear. 
The motive for disobedience makes sense. By neglecting the Sabbath, the Israelites could stand to profit. By conducting business seven days a week instead of six days a week, their business could be more successful. Doesn't that just make sense? What's the problem then? Why should they care about the seventh day? Why should it matter for them? Why does the church care or to honor the Old Testament commandment of honoring the Sabbath? It seems like I could be more successful, even in school, if I study on the Sabbath, if I work or if I do the labors that it takes to take care of my house, all of these things could be more productive. Our attitude is the same as we approach this, but what stands out to me as remarkably significant is there is no greater commandment that God demonstrates more jealousy in keeping the Sabbath holy. There's nothing in all of the Old Testament canon, even in the New Testament, that God seems to observe as more remarkable than this demonstration of a day of rest. Could it be, I ask you as a question, that God knows us better than we do? Could it be that the demonstration of God resting on the seventh day after creating the world is actually an exaction of this representation that we would know what to model because a God who is all-powerful certainly doesn't have need for rest, but He demonstrates it for us, and then He reaffirms it in the covenant of Mount Sinai as He gives the commands to the people, as He begins to establish the nation of Israel, a chosen people set apart for Him so that they would be a blessing to the whole world. Could it be that while we might have the ability to work, to keep ourselves occupied, to even in observing a day of rest, to find ourselves restless, to not want to rest, to be distracted by the things that come, could it be that we're actually neglecting the reshaping of our mind that glorifies God? What do these commandments have to do in the practice of the church? In the face of a no good, very bad Sunday, what does our perspective have to do with the way that we face this? I think today many of us live in a way that would have been similar to Israel before coming back to Israel. We have a tendency to separate the practical part of our life from the spiritual. We have a tendency to say that this part of my life exists so that I can keep up with the world, and this part of my life exists so that I can be preserved in eternity with God. But there's no such separation in the way that God creates us. God creates us as relational beings with the purpose that we might have a relationship with Him. The very nature of humanity is born in the imagio Dei, or the image of God that is given to humans to have this special relationship. There's nothing else in the physical creation that has such a relationship with God, but you and I are created that we can have this, that we can be a part of it and that we can participate in it. And we separate that part of our lives from the way that we live. I go to work 
and I maintain my work relationships and I'm professional and I make sure I keep up a good reputation there and everything that needs to be done. And if I fall behind, well, I'll just work on the day that I'm not supposed to work. I can cut corners. I could even lead with deception and not answer every question or leave things out. I could defraud the system that's before me. Out of necessity, it even makes sense, and it's not spiritual so long as it's separated from my spiritual worship. Let's be reminded, Paul writing to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, says that you are the spiritual worship. To make yourself a living sacrifice on the altar of God. You know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? They keep crawling off the altar. We don't dedicate ourselves to God the way that we ought. Because we give ourselves permission to justify the way that we live. What we find in God's law, and certainly this would have been the mind of the people of Israel as they entered into this covenant, as they spent weeks reading from the Old Testament, as they spent weeks in small groups, not just hearing it, but being ministered to that they would gain a proper understanding as Ezra stood up and read the law, as he prayed to glorify God, as they come together and they enter into this covenant, that they would do exactly what they said that they would make themselves a special people, not even participating in the business of those that did not ascribe to God's law, that they would abstain from it so that God would be glorified. God honors those who are faithful to him. We do not need to behave any way outside of God's will when he provides what we need. When we consider everything that is before us in this promise, especially in the commands of God, not only does he tell them to take the Sabbath off, but the seventh year is supposed to be a year of rest. Could you imagine taking a year off work? I know some of you are thinking, yeah, it'd be pretty cool. Can you imagine the anxiety of providing for your family with taking a year off work? For the nation of Israel, it meant not planting crops. It meant not harvesting their crops. Can you imagine the anxiety that would come with that? Leviticus 25, verse 18, God says to the people, Follow my decrees and be careful to observe my laws, and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, What will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year. What a tremendous blessing. What a tremendous promise that God gives his people to provide for them in honoring him. But we ask again, this is the question, what does it do? What is the purpose? Why would God instruct us to live this way? The physiology of our brain. I want to get nerdy for a second. You guys are going to love this. I know my church loves when I get nerdy. 
The physiology of our brain exists in such a way that neural pathways, that is the connections between our brain, establish connections that happen almost instantaneously. The issue of making habits in our life is that once a habit is established, we do not immediately make the reaction that comes through a thought process. In fact, your habits are so strong that you make decisions without even thinking about them. This morning, had my habits been stronger, rather than saying that today was a no good, very bad Sunday, my mind would have immediately been turned to the blessings of God that he's already provided for me. That's a habit. That's a discipline that I can create in my brain to honor and glorify God in everything that I do, that in the moment of discouragement or in the moment of frustration, God would be my first thought. In the Sabbath, this is exactly what God is doing to his special creation. That you would take a seventh day and that you would set it apart so that your mind would be reminded as you work, as you toil, as you get frustrated, as you get stressed, as you worry about the things that are ultimately outside of your control, you would be reminded that it is God that provides everything for you. That it is God that provides blessing and famine. That it's through his will that we do all of our toils. When we have this right attitude, when we have this right mind, when we have this perspective and discipline in our lives, when it's regular every seventh day, every seventh year, when it is consistent, our mind is transformed in such a way that we honor and glorify God with our lives in everything. The people of Israel recommitted themselves to honoring God in their business because it was not their work in their business that blessed them. It was not their labor that blessed provided for their family. It was not their intellect. It was not their skill. It was not anything special about them, but it was God through them. Here's the reality. I know competent, talented people who face many, much unsuccess in life. Likewise, I know some pretty untalented people that seem to be doing pretty well. David reflected on this. Solomon reflected on this. How is it that the evil continue to prosper, that those who are before you or those that serve you would not? It isn't our work. And this is a scary reality for us to face as individuals, to recognize the reality that even though we think we are in control of a lot of what's going on in our lives, ultimately we're not. I can't control circumstances. I can't control economics. I can't control the heart of the people around me. I can't control the attitude of my family members. All I can do is be faithful to God. And in that regard, my commitment one to one another, my commitment as a church, this recovenanted commitment of the people of Israel, is that I would live in such a way that my mind would be shaped by God. They make a second commitment, though, and this is the longer portion of our text, that they would be recommitted to God in their support. They would be recommitted to contribute to the needs of the ministries that God has prescribed. There's two things that the people agreed to contribute to together. First, 
to do as God commanded, they promised the firstborn, the firstfruits, and the tithe. The firstborn, these sacrifices, prepared the way ultimately for the death of Christ in their minds. This image or shadow that we find in the Old Testament points to the atoning work of Christ. And, and this is remarkable as we look at what the people did. They promised to make the sacrifices necessary, this is in verse 33, to make atonement for Israel. The word atonement, I think, eludes us. We don't really know what it means. We just use it in our Christian language. It's become a part of our Christianese that we haven't really settled on what it means to be atoned. One way to remember it, atonement means to be at one. It's our at one with God. Here's the atonement that takes place as we recognize that the Imagio Dei, the special relationship that exists inside of humanity, is in part that we have a relationship with God. That relationship is broken by the consequences of sin. That's why the people make sin offerings for the atonement of Israel. So that that relationship can be restored. In unity that is modeled by the people coming together to covenant together for these things. This unity is modeled in the church. That we would be of one mind. That we would be of one service. That we would be of one passion. That we would see all that God has done for us in making us at one. As Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, that those who were far off would be called near. That they would be grafted into the nation of Israel. That they would become part of this promise. That it would be fulfilled in what God had promised through the covenant given to Abraham. That he would make a special people that would be a blessing to the whole world. That this atoning work would point to the work of our Lord, the perfect sacrifice. Or, as Peter writes, 1 Peter 1.18, that we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The people promise not just their firstborn, but their first fruits. It's risky to give from the first fruits and firstborns. Our land might not produce more harvest. Our business may not have continued success. But the Bible teaches that it is from the first things that we give to God. And there is a reason for this. It is to prevent the pridefulness that is in our natural sinful nature. Proverbs 3.9. The speaker says... Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Why is it that we give to God from the first that we have? A few years ago, when I was the youth pastor at Temple Baptist in Rogers, I was teaching a children's ministry. And if you've ever taught children's church, you know that those people have a special place in God's kingdom for their sacrifice. Children's church is a bunch of fun. Kids are a bunch of fun. And I think the truth is we find more insight in what they do. At Temple, one of the things that we did was we gave the children an opportunity to give to God. Many of the parents gave their children uh, allowances and things like that, and they modeled for them the lifelong discipline of giving to God from what they had. One student had $2. And I remember he, uh, he came to me and he said, I don't have anything to give this morning in children's church. And I said, well, that's okay. You don't have, to. that's just fine. He said, I did. You see, I had $2. 
As I was walking into church, one of the dollars blew out of my hand and it fell into the drain and I wasn't able to go get it. My parents wouldn't let me. He said, I had two dollars. One was for me and one was for God. And when that dollar bill flew out of my hand, I said, well, God, there's your dollar. It's a risky business to give with the first that we have. We do it so that in our giving, we would be reminded that it's not what we give that belongs to God, but everything that He has blessed us with is already His. Even the concept of the tithe is recognizing together that the people belong to God. First Corinthians reminds us we are not of our own possession, that we were purchased with a price. The sacrifice that makes the atonement, that makes us at oneness with God, is the purchase of everything that we are. Our spiritual worship then before God is not an act of saying, I've dedicated this portion of my life to you, God, but it is the act of saying, all that I am is all for you. Everything that I have already belongs to you. In fact, I do not regard myself as a man going through this world and accumulating possession or, or not accumulating possession in some cases. I exist in this world as a steward of everything that you've given to me. I exist in this world as already yours. Everything that I have already belongs to you, and it makes sense that God calls us to be a giver then. The second promise that the people of Israel make is that they would meet the special needs of the temple. We have to put this in perspective, right? The Babylonian captivity had come. The Persian Empire had conquered Babylon and Israel had been granted some permission to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild this special city. Ezra had been there before. The temple had been, been rebuilt. And even though it wasn't restored to its glory days during the days of Solomon, it, it was rebuilt. Now Nehemiah was there and he returned with the burden thinking, Jerusalem, well, the temple's built. Surely the walls have been rebuilt and after all this time they hadn't. And so he's given permission and he's given provision. This is a theme in the book of Nehemiah that God not, <coughs> not only provides what he needs, but God provides the lumber, the workers, the safe passage, everything that he needs to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. God instigates in the hearts of the people this reaction to the reading of God's law, that they would weep, that the Levites would tell them, do not weep for the day is holy, that they would observe the Feast of Booths for the first time since Joshua brought them into the land of Israel in the first place. And here they are recognizing that what led to such decay, what led to such spiritual decay, spiritual lethargy, falling asleep, what led to all of this was neglecting what God had told them to do in the beginning. And so the people of Israel, recognizing the special relationship that they're given with God, this atoning work to restore the relationship that they have with God, and recognizing that everything that in this world belongs to God as the creator and the rightful owner of it all, that all of their possessions already belong to them, 
their special relationship with creation. They also recognize the relationship that they have with one another. Well, this is the point of the covenant. If it's not with God, why does it exist? Why would the people covenant together at all? And here it is. To define their special relationship with one another. I wrongfully thought that the covenant, not only in Nehemiah, but also in church covenants and things that we use of that document, uh, documentation and third doc, uh, church documents, I thought that this was an expression of our understanding of what the church is. I was wrong. Some of you know that our church has been going through the process of evaluating our covenant, and we've elected a group of people who are diligently doing this work. And I encourage you to speak with them and to visit with them about that process because they probably need someone to complain to about how much reading I've given to them. I've asked them to do research and to read chapters of books and all of these different things. I haven't counted how many pages it is because I'm afraid I'll be ashamed. Here's what we've learned so far in this process. The covenant actually isn't an expression of ecclesiology or what the church is. It's an expression of anthropology or what humanity is. The covenant doesn't, doesn't exist as an expression of our understanding about what the Bible says about the church. It exists as an expression of our understanding of humanity. Our sin nature, even in being redeemed, even in being regenerate, especially in our culture, is to place our emphasis and our understanding on who we are as individuals. Who we are as an individual person. What makes me unique? And therefore, what makes my special relationship with God unique? But what we find in the Bible is that God does not call individuals. He calls people. Certainly, our salvation belongs to us. No, no, I am not saying that the salvation of our parents will save us. I'm not saying that we can rest secure that we belong to a Christian community. Even your church membership will not save you. Even the ordinance of baptism will not save you. Even observing the Lord's Supper will not save you. Even having good friendships will not save you. Your salvation is certainly, it belongs to you. It's an individual response. But what we find is that God's people do not exist as individuals. They're called together. They're called to community. Why? Because we're easily discouraged. Because we easily neglect the things of God. Because we're fallible. Because we live with blind spots. Because we think that we know more than we do. Like me, thinking that the covenant was an expression of ecclesiology when actually it's an expression of anthropology. And I needed community to show that to me. I needed people alongside me to discover this truth. And I believe we have found it. I believe that we have searched God's word. I believe that we've read from those who have searched God's word that we have a clear understanding of this. And this is remarkable as we look at what it takes to uphold God's law that we would provide for his ministries. In Nehemiah, they said that they would provide for the temple or that they would have a special wood offering that would be brought together, that they would, they've taken um, tickets for each other and, and have this sort of drawing that they would have select times and seasons that they would do this because they recognized that they had neglected the house of God. 
Not only should we be committed to glorify God with the way in which we make money or the way in which we live our lives, that we should recognize that there's no part of our life separated from our spiritual worship, but we should be committed to God to use our money in a way that glorifies Him. If it already belongs to Him, we should honor and glorify Him with it completely. The Bible teaches that his people should be givers, and this is because the practice, the discipline of giving, changes our view and approach to the Word of God. When we live with a mentality of famine, we hold on to our money, we hold on to the things that we have, and we rely ultimately upon ourselves. We rely on our ability to make things last rather than relying on the one who provides all things. This principle is demonstrated in the great clarity throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, affirm that we should be giving regularly, that we should plan to give, that we should give proportionally, and that we should give privately. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 affirms that we must give freely and that we must give cheerfully. All of these things are pointing to the fact that what God has established, He's asked His people to provide for that they would be effective in all that they do. The people of Israel reached a place of spiritual decay because they had turned away from what God's commandments had told them to do. They had made their spiritual worship a secondary issue in their lives. They'd relegated the authority of the Old Testament worship to someone else, and they had disassociated themselves from it. If we're to recognize that God has made us relational beings to have a relationship with Him, a relationship with creation, and a relationship with one another, then we also have to recognize that this relationship with one another is what stirs us up into action. It is what our individual contribution to corporate worship is what maintains the spiritual worship of God. I think what I just said was very confusing. Because here's what we're, we're kind of putting on, on two hands and navigating. I have an individual salvation that belongs to God, and I have a community that stirs me up that I identify with. That the act of atonement takes place through God identifying with humanity that we could identify with Him well, how do these two things reconcile together? How do they make sense? How do I balance who I am as an individual with my corporate identity or my communal identity as a people of God? How do these two things live in harmony? They're both presented in the Bible. That tells me they don't contradict each other. That means that they must be harmonious. And it's the act of individually contributing to this corporate body that makes sense. It's the act of our individual participation that begins to make it take light. Here's the the best picture that I can think of. When the church stands and sings, and perhaps you don't sing, perhaps you just go along with the tune, but you don't really sing, maybe you're embarrassed. You don't want the person sitting next to you to hear how out of tune you are or how the 
the cold that you just recovered from has affected your voice. The body of Christ rising together to sing the glories of God is a picture of our individual participation. In the Old Testament system, they had this practice of sacrifice. They had this practice of of putting things on the altar and slaying them, that 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 would become their atonement. They had a special group of people, the priests, who were responsible for this, that gave them, I think in some sense, the ability to relegate this special authority to worship God to, that caused them to neglect worship at all. But under the covenant of grace in the New Testament, what we are under, we are told that we are the high priest. We're taught that each Christian is a priest. In Baptist life, we call that the priesthood of the believer. That our spiritual worship comes not just from the way that we live our life, but it comes from the motivation that causes these things to sprout forward. I'm sure many of you who have been in church your whole lives have heard passages like this that talk about the sacrifice and the tithe, and you've heard preachers um, ask you to up your giving or up the way that you contribute. I'm not asking you to do that this morning. I'm asking you to consider the motivation for giving. It's Thanksgiving. This week we'll gather with our families and we'll think about all that we have. We'll count our many blessings. We'll remember that God is good in all that he does. And we'll be thankful together and we'll encourage each other and we'll remember all that he's provided for us. Have you allowed the spiritual worship of the church to fall asleep? Do you withhold your voice from the congregation because you think you're singing for people rather than singing for God. When we give, it is an act of spiritual worship and setting right that in our minds and in our attitudes we have already been compelled that everything that we have belongs to God, that all that this is His, that we give to Him out of obedience and out of worship. And it's an act of worship as we give to the needs of the church, as we contribute to the ministries that we support, as we contribute and provide for missionaries who are planting churches, as we serve God with our possessions. We recognize on the seventh day, we recognize regularly and with scheduled routine in a planned and proportional way that everything that we have belongs to God and we remind ourselves of this. So that as we go through our lives the rest of the week, as we work, we're reminded that we don't cut corners, that we don't deceive, that all of these things aren't just an act of being upright or being moral, but they're an act of our attitude being changed within us. That our heart is in alignment with God's will, that our mind is resolute on what God has provided for us, and we are committed to seeing ourselves as His possession. If there's any application from the terms of the covenant that Israel wrote, it is this. We cannot separate any part of our lives from the spiritual worship of God. All that we are exists to glorify all that He is. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. 
God, I thank you for the way that you guide us. God, I thank you for the way that you encourage us in our fallenness. And Lord, I pray that as we conclude this morning, as we stand to sing, as we stand to glorify you, to respond to your word, God, that we would stand with one mind. God, that as we prepare this week to worship you and an expression of our family as we minister to those that potentially do not know you, God, that you would protect our testimony in all that we do. God, that we would be identifiable as a special people of your own possession. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?